you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I want to read for you this morning, verses 18 through 27. If you're new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, we've taken a pause in a longer series of messages we've been uh, traveling through through the Gospel of John, and now in a uh, collection of weeks we've been looking specifically at Romans chapter 8. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand. This is God's Word. It is from Him. It has all of His authority and power. It is without any error. It is for our good. It's life-giving. And so let's give it our full attention. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding to your word. O God, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would conform us more to Christ. We ask that you would comfort us with good news. And we pray this through Christ the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, last week... With verse 17, we reached a pivot point, if you like, in Romans chapter 8. Because there, as we saw last week, the apostle tells us that the way to glory is down a pathway of suffering. That no one goes to heaven, if you will. No one enters the new creation until they walk through the valley of this fallen creation. And in such a way, we are being identified with Christ. Our suffering is not just the random events of a meaningless universe. Certainly, we suffer in ways that are common to all people in a fallen world. But even more than that, for the Christian, our suffering means that we are being identified with Christ 
who himself suffered for us. And as Paul takes up the subject of our sufferings in this life, he uses the term groaning to express the pain and the longing and the sorrow and the fears that are common in this world, this world that has been ruined by sin. And as he takes up this difficult subject, we can hear him addressing the question that surely comes up as we think about suffering. And the question is this, will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? Is the glory that is to be revealed, is the new creation in the presence of God so good that we will know that it was worth every sorrow that we bore in this life? Will it be worth it? This is the question that Paul answers without mentioning it specifically here in verse 18. But it's surely what is underlying what he states. And you see it there once again in verse 18. He says, For I consider... Now stop there. The term consider can also be translated as reckon. For I reckon, for I consider. It is a word that indicates calculation. What Paul is about to say is the fruit of careful calculation, careful consideration. It's the result of his spiritual arithmetic. For I consider, I reckon, I have calculated and concluded that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. This Sober calculation is all about the relative weight of the glory to be revealed to us and in us, and that the relative weight of that glory, and by the way, glory, the Hebrew word for glory, literally means weighty, weight, substance. Paul is saying the weightiness of the glory, the goodness of the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us, is so immensely greater than the sufferings of this life, I can't even compare them. And keep in mind, Paul does not tell us this from a life of ease. He himself suffered tremendously. He suffered in his mind. He suffered in his body. His body was a roadmap of suffering. So he does not tell us this as someone who does not know how painful the world's maledictions can be, but as one who has suffered like Christ, as one who has suffered in ways that so many, if not most of us, will never reach his level of suffering. He is telling us, I've done the math, and here's the conclusion. It's worth it. The glory that will be revealed to us, and yes, in us, will, when we see it, make the sufferings of this life become an invisibility. Some of you, depending on the translation you're using, I preach from the English Standard Version, Some of your versions will say there at the end of verse 18. 
the glory to be revealed in us. Some of your translations may say the glory to be revealed to us. Now, the most direct translation of Hamas is to us. But it can also at times be translated in us. And so many good translations yield that clause in us, the glory to be revealed in us, for good reason, because in the new creation, the glory of God will so transform us that the revelation of the glory that is to be, that is to be revealed will not only be to us, but it really will be in us as God transform us, transforms us from corruptible to incorruptible. So back to our question, will it be worth it? And Paul's answer is as comprehensive as it is bold. I've done the calculating. I've added it up. And I can tell you that it's worth it. And that you will see the day that it's worth it. You won't have to anymore have me tell you that it's worth it because you'll know it's worth it. And Paul then appeals to the whole weight of redemptive history to prove it. Now, I've traced out the rest of the message as a sort of long sentence that goes like this. And you'll see it kind of laid out in your sermon guide if you happen to grab one of those. But this is what we're going to hear in our remaining time. That first of all, the entire created order is waiting eagerly for the revealing of God's glory because it has been subjected to the curse of sin with the goal of final redemption, which we ourselves long for in hope as the Holy Spirit helps us in the waiting. Now let's unpack that. First of all, the entire created order is waiting eagerly for the revealing of God's glory. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That expression translated eager longing, is not found outside of the New Testament. And it appears only one other place, and that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. It's a compound word incorporating into it the, the Greek word for head. The meaning being to crane your neck or stretch your neck, get your head out above and over so that you can see something. We've all done that. I remember as a kid... We were living in the Philadelphia area at the time. It was 1976. And if you've ever seen red, white, and blue, you've never seen Philadelphia during the bicentennial of 1976. And we traveled out to Valley Forge Park. Yes, that Valley Forge. And President Ford, who wasn't going to be president much longer, um, was appearing in person at Valley Forge Park during part of Philadelphia's extended bicentennial celebrations. And I remember as a little kid seeing, I was, I think, nine years old, seeing uh, the three helicopters, presidential helicopters, one of them, of course, Marine One, and you never knew which one exactly the president was in. And they come flying in low, and they land, and, and I see them flying in, and then they dip below the rows of thousands of people in front of me, and I couldn't see a thing. And then President Ford steps up onto a stage, and I couldn't see a thing. I'd gone all this way. You would have thought, but I'm a little kid standing amidst thousands and thousands of adults. 
And I remember hearing the sound of his voice, but I couldn't see him. And I'm standing on tiptoes and I'm craning my neck and I'm trying to look between bodies. And I never actually saw him. Try as I might. Well, that's the idea here. You are straining to see. You're leaning into it. You're craning your neck. You're using all of your bodily contortions to try and see what is ahead of you. Some have called this a hopeful anxiety. And of course, Paul is using a literary technique. He's personifying nature, saying that the creation... And what he means by the creation is everything except us. The creation waits with eager longing, straining its neck for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. Now what Paul means by that is, in the words of one commentator, the unveiling of the true nature of God's people, God's adopted children. The full revealing of God's completed, redeeming work in the lives of His people. The completion of taking them from sinners and enemies, choosing them, calling them, converting them, justifying them, sanctifying them, and finally glorifying them unto eternal life. All creation is craning its neck to see that. But why is that? Why is that? Why is the unveiling of the final redemption of us, of sinners, of saved sinners, why is that so important, as it were, to the rest of creation? Well, think on this. What was the mechanism for the fall and the ruination of the created order? Was it not the sin of Adam? Was it not the moral and spiritual rebellion of humankind against God the Creator? Wasn't that the mechanism of creation's fall? And so, the mechanism, if you will, of the redemption of creation will begin with the full and final redemption of sinners. So the entire created order waits with eager longing for this. And why? Number two, because it has been subjected to the curse of sin. You see verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility. Another way to translate that word would be vanity. We hear the The preacher from Ecclesiastes saying with all of the despair he can muster, vanity, vanity, or futility, futility, all is meaningless. The the creation was subjected to this cry of futility, this experience of futility. And what is futility? Well, in this case, it's basically this. Everything has fallen, been corrupted, ruined by the fall, and everything decays and goes away. Everything. It was interesting, I saw just last evening a clip from a movie, and I don't even know the name of the movie. I just saw a portion of the clip, it was Tommy Lee Jones, who oddly enough is playing some old grizzled 
cynical man. A real departure in type for him. Um, and he's talking to somebody who's apparently a Christian. And I'm going to paraphrase what he says, but he says, listen, all your religion can offer me are promises of happiness and, and life. Your, your, your religion doesn't say anything about suffering and death. Show me, he said, show me a church that can tell me about suffering and death, that all things die, and, and that's a church I might join, he said. I said, well, who's he been talking to? We talk about death all the time around here. You haven't met our preacher. He's always telling us about how sad everybody is. No, I mean, we do know that there are Christian churches who the only thing they can give you is your prom- of some empty promise of your best life now. And for that, we ought to be ashamed. But my heart went out to this character even as I was watching him. And I thought, oh, listen to the real Christians out there. Read the real Christians out there. They have lots to say about suffering in this life, but it ends in hope. It ends in hope. Now, who subjected? For the creation was subjected to futility, this endless cycle of decaying and dying. Not willingly, in other words, creation didn't walk in and say, this seems like a good idea, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, the creation was not subjected to this futility by Adam or by Satan. The creation was subjected to this never-ending, seemingly never-ending cycle of decay and death, subjected by God. He's the one. Because this is judgment. When God judged Adam, he placed a curse upon the rest of creation. Genesis chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you. And so this futility refers to the fact that no matter how healthy we are, we are still in the process of decay. I don't know if you saw recently, satellite imagery has discovered a vast city buried under the jungle debris within the Amazon. It's never yet been discovered because you just can't see it. But, uh, but special satellite imagery has found it. I remember when I was a kid traveling to Mexico and we went to Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula, the, the, the largest of the um, Aztec um, cities that, are, that have been recovered. The tallest of, of all of their pyramids is located there. And at one time when it was initially discovered, it was almost completely buried. It couldn't be seen by the naked eye. And now you can walk throughout those impressive ruins. The point being is that even the greatest of civilizations that people build will one day be buried. This is the futility. And yet this futility, we're told, was not without purpose because it has been subjected to this futility in hope. Number three, what's the hope? It's the goal, it's the hope, it's the promise of final redemption. Again, keeping your eyes on the text, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And that makes all the difference, right? That means that ultimately the cry futility is not exactly accurate. 
Because God is going to banish that futility one day just as surely as He brought it about. In hope. Okay? Here's the goal. Verse 21 then. Here is the hope. Verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's why creation is like the nine-year-old kid in the vast crowd of thousands desperately craning his neck to see the thing he wants to see. Because it too will obtain the freedom that has been granted to the children of God. What a gracious reversal this is. Christian, listen. Your salvation from start and ultimately to finish is a sermon from God to the entire created order. Full redemption is coming. Our sin was the cause of the world's corruption. Our final redemption by the grace of our Lord serves as the very first signal that He will redeem all the rest of it as well. And this final redemption, number four, is something which we ourselves long for in hope. Because we're not there yet. Anybody here think that they have been completely and finally sanctified, redeemed, glorified? If you do, you're fooling yourself. We're still waiting also. Verse 22, For we know... I like how Paul says that. These are things that he has no doubt taught them in the past. These are things that they have been trained and that they understand from the teaching of the Scriptures, which for them was the teaching of the Old Testament, the proclamation then of Christ as the fulfillment. We know these things, Paul is saying, which, by the way, is also a good lesson in understanding that we have to constantly keep hearing the truth over and over again, don't we? You don't hear the Gospel once and say, now run along, you've got it all. We need the Gospel all the time. We need the Word of God all the time. We need to keep learning. We need to keep learning to repent of sin. We need to keep learning to trust in Christ. We need to keep learning to not give way to despair even when we are heartbroken. We have to keep learning these things. We have to continue to learn that God is dependable. We have to continue to learn that the glory is better and greater and weightier than the suffering. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What do we know about childbirth? We know that it is painful and we know that the result is glorious. Groaning, pains of childbirth. These are powerful expressions of physical pain, of distress. It is Paul's way of describing the extent to which all creation has been impacted by sin and the judgment of God. The created order confirms to our senses what our consciences already know, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now what Paul is stating here about all of creation groaning under the futility of this endless cycle of decay and death, what Paul is stating here was actually a very controversial thing to say 
as a citizen of Rome, which he was. Because in the decades of Paul's ministry, there had been a resurgence in Rome of the belief that the peace that Caesar Augustus had ushered into the Roman Empire and throughout that whole region had extended beyond just conquering the surrounding nations, but that he, Caesar Augustus, whom at one point would be referred to as the savior of the world, the belief arose, and this helped drive the cult of the Caesar, the belief arose that under Caesar's reign, not just Augustus, but then all the Caesars to follow, under the the, the umbrella of Caesar's reign would not only be peace with other nations by way of conquering, but Caesar even brought about fertile fields and fruitful flocks and timely rains and gentle winds. That it was Caesar, his reign, his rule, his peace that brought all of those things. And during part of Paul's ministry, Nero had really seized upon that cultic belief that it is in Rome where you experience paradise and it is under Caesar that you experience fruitfulness and prosperity. That was really resurrected and used as propagandistic purposes because there were lots of people in Rome suffering. And so what does Nero do? He resurrects that old belief that, oh no, it's me, Caesar. I will bring about the great harvests. I will bring about the favorable weather. I will bring harmony to all of creation. And so here Paul is saying, no, actually things are a mess and they're going to stay that way. Even when they're good, they don't stay good. That was close to an insurrectionist statement at that time in Rome. You see, even during Paul's day, politicians thought they were gods. Even in Paul's day, politicians made promises they didn't intend to keep and could never keep. Even in Paul's day, people were willing to make their politicians their hope. My, we've learned a lot, haven't we? So it's likely that what Paul is doing here, at least in part, is a way of saying, don't believe the hype. Things are messed up, and you know it. Verse 23, he goes further. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now stop there. That term first fruits is an agrarian term, of course. It refers to the initial appearing, the initial appearing of the grain in the fields. And if these first fruits were strong, then the people knew that they could expect a great harvest. And so what is Paul saying? Watch this. He's saying, God in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit is the first fruits of hope in your life. Now think on that. If the Holy Spirit, if God himself in the person of the Spirit is the first fruits in your life, What do you think the harvest is going to be like? What's he doing? He's still proving his point that it will be worth it. We need to be reminded of this because we who have the first fruits of the Spirit of God still, as he says, groan inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, he says. 
Now, if you were paying attention last week, you'll say, but hold it, we've already been adopted. And you would be right. That's verse 15. But he qualifies his statement here. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What's the next clause? The redemption of our bodies. In other words, what Paul is saying, we are waiting for the inheritance. We've been adopted, yes, but we are waiting for the full benefits of that adoption where the Lord will turn our corruptibility into incorruptibility, where where he will turn our death and decay into eternal life and joy and peace. And then he says, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. You were not saved in the hope that God would give you your best life now. You were not saved in the hope that every day would be like Friday. You were not saved in the hope that you could have heaven here. And I think that's why so many of the prosperity churches, they grow and they grow and they grow, but they have streams of people leaving out the backside. Because they come to realize that what they're being told up there does not comport with reality. Unfortunately, they don't always know it doesn't even comport with the Bible. So we're waiting. In this hope we were saved, the hope of the glory to come, the hope of an embodied eternity in the new creation. That's always been the Christian hope. And he goes on and he explains a little bit about hope. If you can see it right now, if you have it in possession right now, then there's no hope. That's not hope. That's possession of the thing. But by definition, hope requires patience because hope involves waiting. And there's a day coming when there will be no more need for hope. Do you know that hope is temporary? Hope is one of the best of all good things. But we won't need hope when we come into possession of our inheritance. We hope, Paul says, for what we don't see. We wait for it with patience. And if God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of this final harvest to come, then can you begin to imagine what it will be like? What hope we have. Finally, all of this happens as the Holy Spirit helps us in the waiting You see that wonderful, wonderful clause at the beginning of verse 26? Would you look at it? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. That term translated, helps us in our weakness, is a single Greek word. It means to carry a burden. It's the picture of a weight being taken up upon the back of another. Isn't this what Jesus did when He took the cross upon His back, quite literally. Wasn't He shouldering our burden? Wasn't He carrying our judgment? Didn't He bear the weight of our sin and then take the additional weight of the judgment that we had earned? How now then will the Holy Spirit simply abandon us? 
what Jesus went to the cross to accomplish, now the Holy Spirit comes and applies as He helps us in our weaknesses. That that clause helps us in our weaknesses. This single word, it's this long word, it's a compound word. And Paul is telling us here, in the midst of all of this groaning and longing, all of this pain and sorrow, the Holy Spirit Himself comes along and slips His shoulder, as it were, underneath the weight of it all. I was a seminary student and a youth pastor at the same time in Kansas City. And um, I remember one day sitting at a table in between classes, um, having some lunch with a group of students, and one of our guys was a youth pastor at a church not too far away from the seminary, and he said, hey guys, I need help moving a, a pool table. Of course, I'm younger than I'm in my 20s. This is at a stage when you're always helping friends move. Aren't you glad that's over? <laughs> this is one of the great blessings of being in your 50s. None of your friends move anymore. Um, and if they do, they have the money to pay somebody to do it. Um, but I was still in my 20s, and so you're always moving all the time, it seems. And so we, we, there was a group of us, we, we went over to the church just a couple miles down the road, and now it's one of those big old school pool tables with the genuine slate top. That means it weighs about, you know, 5 million pounds, right about there, give or take a pound or two. And and I remember we get under that thing, and um, it's clear we were not going to be able to get it from where it was to where it was going. I mean, we could move it some, but it was going to be a Herculean task, and then Hercules showed up. Um, another guy from the seminary, a big boy. Once he got his body up in there, we were able to move it. Without, without him, it would have been, I don't know if we could have done it. And then he came along and he got up underneath that thing. And there's a similar portrait here. The Holy Spirit shoulders the load in our weakness. This is not a word you apply when you see the Holy Spirit as your power source to cause you to do sensational, super cool, awesome things. This is a word for weak people. And it is to the weak that the Holy Spirit goes and helps. And do you see how Paul applies this help specifically? Because we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Literally, that clause means without words. And He, because at that point, as the Spirit intercedes for us, it's going on in a way we, we can't hear it, we can't overhear it. It goes on in a court that we don't have access yet to. But that's where He prays for us. And he who searches hearts, and this is where the assurance comes, the one who intercedes for us is praying before the Father with whom he is one and so shares the same mind, the same priorities, the same will, the same love, the same care. And the Father and the Spirit and the Son also happen to know just exactly what we need. 
Augustine in the, 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 the great 5th century theologian, one of the most important theologians in the history of the church after the Apostle Paul. In his great and really timeless work, his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions, he remarks on the prayers of his faithful mother, Monica. Monica had become a Christian. Augustine was a libertine, sexually profligate, arrogant, um, hating Christ and wanting nothing to do with his mother's Christianity. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And Augustine had the opportunity to go and study and teach in Italy. Now, they were living in northern Africa, which was a part of the Mediterranean Roman Empire. And she wanted him to stay there. She wanted him close by so she could watch, keep an eye on him, keep praying for him in hopes that her influence would finally draw him to Jesus. And she prayed, Lord, don't let him go to Italy. Don't let him leave. And he left. And Augustine writes how it was in Italy where his heart was broken, his conscience was stirred, and he turned in desperation to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And he writes this really wonderful line. He says, speaking of his mother, he says, the Lord denied her special request in order to grant her lifelong request. She didn't know what to pray, but the Spirit did. It's a wonderful comfort when our brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for us. Please don't ever take that lightly. We need each other's prayers because God designed us that way. But it is another thing altogether to know that the third person of the Trinity prays for you now. And you know that's added to what we learn about the Lord Jesus' heavenly session before the Father. Our great high priest who, as we sing, before the throne of God above prays for us. Isn't it wonderful this portrait of this intra-Trinitarian praying that is going on for you? We have a heavenly intercessor in the person of the Lord Jesus, and we have an internal intercessor in the person of the Holy Spirit, so that when you do not have the words, when you've no idea what to say or how to pray, know that the Holy Spirit prays in words that are too deep for us. And when he prays, he always knows, he always knows how to pray and what to pray for. Do you have any doubt that the third person of the triune God knows how to pray just for you? Can you even take this in? The day will come when you and I will see how the triune God had designs on our lives that were ordered by perfect wisdom and goodness. And all of them, every single one of the groanings of this life, the groaning of your own sin, 
the groaning of your own losses, the groaning of your pains and sorrows, all of it will disappear when you see the glory that will be revealed in you. And you'll say, it was worth it. The apostle was right. Those words that I heard so often, for I consider, I've done the math, and I won't even compare the sufferings of this life to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That, though those words will move from the page and they will come out of your mouth as your own experience. That great Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford wrote this, quote, When we shall come home, when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, And when we shall look back to pain and suffering, then shall we see life and sorrow to be less than one step from a prison to glory. And that our little inch of time, suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, would you, by your Spirit, commit your word to our hearts and that you would yield hope in every soul in this room. For the skeptic, for the one who is not yet a believer, draw them to yourself. Grant them faith in Christ now. Today, this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.